the ideas of the team that's presenting the project, the ideas of management team that's going to be giving you feedback. And it's only through confrontation that you get the best, right? Uh, it's kind of like going against the whole idea of yes man culture, right? There's a little bit of, sometimes when you get in a company where things are a little bit too collaborative, there's a little bit of that, you know, everybody's nice to each other and the real, you know, the gist of the discussion never really gets talked about. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an experienced CEO and board director who has been instrumental in positioning products and leading teams to some of the world's global companies. He has experience in advancing businesses into new territory, accelerating both revenue and profit growth, gaining share and growing in mature markets, optimizing finance performance, building high performance management teams, and restructuring organizations according to contemporary business models. Based in Singapore, he is currently the Group Managing Director of Southgate Ventures, which is an education platform company headquartered in Singapore with 11 international schools in Indonesia, Korea, and India under the name of SIS Group Schools and Singapore Global Schools. They have lots of exciting plans to expand into Thailand, India, China, Bangladesh, and Kazakhstan. His 30 plus years of corporate experience covers private equity at the Abraj Group, financial advisory at H2O Capital, commercial banking at TD Bank, and investment banking at Lancaster Financial Incorporated in Canada. Business development and marketing at PNG in Switzerland, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, and Australia, and top management experience at L'Oreal, where he was the managing director of its companies in Malaysia and Taiwan. He currently serves on the board of Maxif Berhard, Malaysia's number one mobile techo, Petronas Dangaran Berhard, Malaysia's national oil and gas company, and on the Global Advisory Council of Queen's University Smith School of Business in Canada, and served on the boards of the European Chamber of Commerce in Taipei and Taipei American School. He is also the president of Queen's University Alumni Branch in Singapore. He holds undergraduate degree, degrees from Queen's University Canada and an MBA from INSEAD France. He is certified with the Canadian Securities Institute and has attended executive programs held at the IMD, IMD Stanford, USC and US, uh, sorry, UC San Francisco. I'm excited to introduce to you an outstanding leader, Alvin Hugh. Alvin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Craig. Well, ben. what a what an introduction. I'm I'm just blown away <laughs> by the number of diverse roles that you've had. Um, how does that make you feel? You know, uh, it feels great, and uh, you know, one can never really plan for such a diverse you know uh, career path. Uh, so when one looks back at it, it, it kind of does look. Good, and I have to say, you guys make it sound better, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in Malaysia and spent your teenage years in Canada. What was the dream growing up? 
You know, uh, I think it was a blessing in disguise that my parents sent me to do my high school in Winnipeg in Canada because it, you know, taught me to be self-reliant. And, you know, in a very strange way, you know, I guess back in those days where, you know, it was still possible to do things like that. I actually had to rent my own apartment when I was in grade 10 and live on my own. So growing up, living on your own, you know, fending for yourself, you learn to set yourself some ambition and dreams. And given the fact that my dad was a businessman in Malaysia running um, uh, 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 different businesses, you know, from tin mining to rubber plantation to housing development projects. Uh, I, you know, had a very clear vision in that I didn't want to go back to work for the family business. And I was very, you know, focused on making sure that when I finished high school and university, I'd find a job that would kind of keep me in North America. Um, and that was what happened, uh, Craig, you know, just, you know, having that ambition to be independent and, you know, having that, you know, the, the, the passion to want to do something for yourself and, you know, to be successful in your own right. Alvin, can you, that seems incredible as a young person to, to head out to Winnipeg to attend high school. Can you explain the, the feeling of an isolation and, and did you feel sort of, I guess, abandoned or were you excited for the adventure? How did you view it? Yeah, uh, ben, I guess it was a very exciting, it, it felt exciting at the very beginning, uh, leaving Malaysia, saying goodbye to my family. Uh, uh, I went with my sister, I have to say, uh, who was a year younger than me, so I didn't feel totally abandoned, although she was younger than me. Um, and, and there was that sense of, wow, there's a whole new world outside there for us, right? Um, so, and it kind of was made more exciting because back then, the trajectory to go to Winnipeg, you know, was not so direct, so we kind of had to fly through London, where we spent a couple of days and, you know, kind of took in what London was all about and fly to Toronto and really get a sense of, you know, the metropolitan city that Toronto was. And then, you know, strangely enough, the airlines were on strike. So we couldn't fly from Toronto to Winnipeg and actually had to take the train. And the train kind of was a 24-hour journey that meandered through the Great Lakes you know, and then took us right into the prairies of uh, Winnipeg. So all that was super exciting, right? And um, um, and then getting into Winnipeg, you know, uh, you know, like I said, I had my sister with me. Uh, but what was nice was I also had my brother's, uh, my father's brother's uh, family who was there to kind of, kind of be a bit of a host family for us. Right. Um, so that kind of helped. And then going into Catholic school systems where we were coming from in Malaysia anyway, uh, kind of made us feel like we were going to a system that we knew, even mm. if it was a completely different environment. So, uh, but obviously, after having gone through the first winter, then we really felt the loneliness and the, and the challenge of having to adapt to a whole new world because you know it was essentially a eighty degree you know temperature swing right going from a thirty degree uh, absolutely environment that's, that's what I was going to ask environment yeah. so fantastic like there was commonalities with school system and family but gee that weather difference must have proved a challenge 
Yeah, it was it was super challenging. And, and to be honest, Ben, I kind of understated because uh, I was the uh, I was the only foreign student in my school. Uh, you know, it was a school that up to then, you know, was you know well known for cultivating very, you know, successful young boys in Winnipeg. Uh, but most of the students were coming from Winnipeg, uh, let alone you know from Canada, right? And I'm suddenly, sure they I seen many go, Malaysians. So, 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 so yeah, so when I was standing up to introduce myself, and you know, the teacher says, you know, say a few words where you're from, and I tell them I'm from Malaysia. Everybody, you know, where is that? <laughs> but you know, I guess it, it's a way to to help people understand where I come from and help them understand, you know, uh, you know, the culture that that I come from as well, and 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 it worked out quite well. And. And would you change that now, looking back on it? Would I change that now? I guess I, I would say I wouldn't change it because I would say that experience made me who I am today. Uh, it made me learn to be self-reliant um, and it made me learn to be organized. Um, and we've had this debate, you know, with my wife as my kids were growing up and I did say, hey, because this experience was such a strong one for me, and I felt so uh, immensely that it actually shaped who I, I am today. I, uh, the argument was, you know, whether we send our kids away to school at a young age. Um, but ultimately, as much as I believe the experience was a strong one for me, there's a lot of data also out there from an education point of view that says that, you know, for kids to be successful today, it's very important for them to be, you know, having the support of, you know, parents and families uh, on top of, you know, uh, this, you know, putting them into a good school. So ultimately, you know, as much as it was a very strong experience and a very, you know, uh, one that shaped my life, um, you know, we decided not to do that for my kids. Yes, it seems you have a real passion for learning. You know, how important was the decision to study economics and finance at university towards becoming a leader? Well, I think, you know, when you study economics and business, it's always, uh, I would tend to say it's one of those practical degrees. Um, you know, uh, I always knew finishing high school that I wanted to be in the world of business. And, um, you know, I, I did have a, you know, uh, a side passion of wanting to go into the medical field. But when I kind of boiled it down to why I wanted to be in a medical field, it kind of turned out to be a, a one where, you know, doctors were reputed to at least kind of generate a level of wealth you know, to be able to help others. And, uh, and I said, at the end of the day, actually, you know, that, why don't I go straight to it rather than go through the medical field? you know, generate the income generating capability and then go into business, which we do see quite a bit of, you know, in, uh, in Malaysia and around the world. And I said, look, I'm going to go straight into business. So, you know, going to, you know, into a program at Queens and learning business and economics, that kind of gave me the foundation to go into business and, and to basically, you know, strike out and, join you know really amazing companies which then i learned a lot from again i wouldn't say you know the my university experience kind of made me 
the leader that I was because you're always learning. You learn, you know, all the time. Uh, and suddenly, you know, having gone to Queens, you know, uh, the, the Smith School of Business and, and, and the subjects that I was learning and all the extracurricular activities that I was doing, I learned a lot about how to deal with people, how to work in teams. But it's not until you get into a job that you really, you know, kind of hone your leadership style, right? So talking about, you know, people there, did you have someone that sort of provided that mentorship in the early phase of your career and that may be still part of your network? Yes. Um, in fact, you know, I, I, I saw the questions that you kind of, you know, that you didn't give us a lot of questions, but, you know, there were three questions that you threw out in your note. And I, you know, when I, when you asked the question about who were, you know, potentially people who made a difference in my career, uh, and now your question around who, you know, a good, you know, mentor was, I would say there were two for me. Uh, one was based at Procter and Gamble. Uh, his name is Henrik Svenes. Uh, he was the vice president in charge of uh, general export, which was the business of Procter and Gamble in uh, the rest of the world, I would call it, right? Procter, when I was working for them, was predominantly an American company with you know close to 300 brands that were being sold in the U.S. Uh, uh, and its ambition was to really you know launch as many of its brands overseas. Uh, so when I was working with Procter, for Procter and Gamble in Geneva, Henrik was the head of that business, and he was the kind of guy that encouraged us to say even if, you know, he, he encouraged energy, he encouraged, you know, uh, a daringness and he encouraged risk taking, um, you know, and he allowed people to make mistakes, right? Uh, and I think, you know, as a young man being given the responsibility of running what was called South Asia at Procter & Gamble, covering countries from Taiwan, right through ASEAN, right through Australia, New Zealand, um, it was quite a big bet, and I, and I think you know Henrik was visionary to be, you know, uh, putting so much faith in very you know uh, young energetic people coming out of business schools uh, to run his businesses for him. Uh, second person was John Paul Agong. John Paul Agong is today the group chairman and CEO of L'Oreal. Uh, and when I, you know, worked for him, he was the head of Asia at that point in time. And I joined him and, you know, he had asked me to put a blueprint together on what it would take for L'Oreal to grow its uh, footprint and business in Asia. And I did that. And, and not only that, he then said, okay, look, uh, I'm going to put you on the ground to try and turn around a business that we've had a lot of problems with in the past, and there was uh, the L'Oreal business in Malaysia. He sent me there, and it was the first time I, w I actually set foot back in Asia. You know, I'd been my career up to then had been in North America, and had been in Europe, uh, and suddenly I'm now down on the ground. And when I was in Malaysia, he also took you know, so he gave me the role of general manager, running the you know uh, consumer sector business for L'Oreal. So this is the, the business that carried brands like L'Oreal Paris, Garnier, and Maybelline. Uh, and then basically two years after I ran that business fairly successfully, 
he took a bet and made me the managing director of the L'Oreal Group in Malaysia. Now that's a pretty big move because you know I had only been in L'Oreal for two years, so relatively new. Um, and, but he took the bet. He said, "Hey, look, I'm going to give you this big responsibility to run you know uh, other divisions." which included not only the consumer sector business, but it included the salon business, the hairdresser business, and it included the luxury business, which is the, uh, the high-end businesses that were sold in department stores, and eventually also the uh, uh, dermal cosmetic businesses that were sold mostly through hospitals and uh, clinics and uh, dermatologists. So, you know, that kind of gave me the opportunity to be, you know, one of 50 country managers in the world uh, and only the second Asian to take a role like that. Uh, so both Henrik and John Paul, uh, I would have to say, were, you know, you know, big mentors to me and, uh, you know, people who kind of gave my career a boost. And was there some internal jealousy um, with your quick rise succession to the top, Alvin? And, and if there was, how how did you manage those? I guess I, I think they didn't. They didn't. I didn't. And I never felt it, Ben. Mm. Uh, only because I I speak fluent French, right? Uh, uh, and I was always able to interact with my colleagues uh, in, in both English and French. Having said that, though, you have to remember L'Oreal is a you know very international company. Um, you know, there, you know, a lot out of the 50 country managers, I would say maybe 50% of them would be French and then 50, the other 50% would be non-French. Uh, and I think that the proportion would have switched already by now to have even more, you know, uh, international national, uh, uh, people, uh, taking on those roles. So it wasn't like they hadn't seen somebody who was non-French taking over the role, right? Mm. Um, and the fact that I, I was very close to the culture, um, you know, having, you know, kind of, you know, grown up with French in mm. uh, Canada, and I haven't continued with French in, uh, in, uh, in INSEAD in, in France, kind of helped me. So, And I guess I'm interested to know also within a company like L'Oreal, what's the main language that business is done in? You know, at the very beginning, I had to say, um, you know, it was mostly French when we were dealing with headquarters in Paris. Uh, uh, But, you know, I think a couple of years later, uh, there was a gen- genuine realization that, you know, the, the company had to switch to English uh, uh, for its own, you know, good and, you know, to meet its ambition to be a true international uh, beauty company. So I think about three or four years into my tenure at L'Oreal, um, the CEO, you know, made a very clear directive to say, you know, he wanted all communication in English and uh, there would be no more, you know, memos in French. Uh, so, you know, that kind of, that kind of helped, right? But, you know, Gee, for the traditionalists that, that would have hurt a little bit. Yeah, I guess. Mm. Uh, but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, uh, most Europeans are very good with languages, right? Mm. Uh, you know, they go through school learning at least two, uh, if not three. And oftentimes English would be one of those two or three languages. Um, so I was pretty impressed. I mean, the switch went okay. 
uh, and you know, and uh, and I think uh, it, it's done. You know, it's kind of helped L'Oreal. And today, I mean, it, it continues to be one of the you know, it continues to be the world's number one beauty company. And uh, under the you know leadership of John Paul, and uh, it's just growing from strength to strength. How big is that now? What what sort of turnover are we talking and, and staffing numbers and countries? You know, uh, I I would say you know L'Oreal's uh, global turnover would probably approach thirty billion today, uh, thirty billion euro, right? right. Uh, and that would probably make it about maybe you know forty billion US dollars, um, and. Company strength, I wouldn't be surprised if it's in about the, you know, 50, 60,000 uh, people now. Amazing. So obviously, you know, from a leadership point of view, they put a lot of ownership on yourself at a very, very young age. What what were the yes. key differences for you in the leadership styles of both Procter & Gamble and L'Oreal? You know, what was their, their strength from a leadership point of view? And, and can you compare them? It's a good question, uh, Craig. Um, and one of the things that I cherish the most about having worked at an American company like Procter and then working at a French company like L'Oreal, um, I think the cultures of the two companies are clearly very different. And I'll get to my leadership style in a minute, yeah? Uh, uh, but let me explain by, you know, if I start by explaining the two different cultures. Uh, Procter was, you know, uh, uh, being an American culture was very process driven, uh, very uh, organized, um, and it was very methodical and almost to the point of, you know, being over cautious. Um, there was always, you know, uh, you know, when things need, needed to be done, there was a very specific way about getting at it. You know, you start with the consumer insight, then you test basically the uh, the new concept, you know, and then you test the product and then come up with the right formulation. And then you do a concept and use test. And then, you know, when you get the right results, you test the ads. And once you te- the ads test well, you basically launch the product, right? Uh, whereas in L'Oreal, the culture was much more, uh, um, much more entrepreneurial, I find. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's much more instinctive, uh, you know, it's much more aesthetic. Uh, so there was a whole idea of, you know, where, where Procter believes in giving what the consumer wants, L'Oreal believes in giving what the consumers dream of, right? So we, you know, they don't totally just look at consumer data. Uh, it's a little bit less demand side driven and it's a lot more supply side driven to say let's look what the research can can do uh, from you know in terms of what it does to the skin and the hair and everything like that how do we kind of come up with the right molecules to put in the products and how do we then solve a particular problem that the consumer you know uh, may or may not even know that they have right and then basically putting into beautiful packaging and beautiful products, and then basically just launching it, you know, fairly, you know, quickly. Um, you know, I'm not saying they don't do their tests, but they do the fundamental tests, and then they, but they won't go overboard, and then basically put it in the market. And then if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, there was a sense of okay, you know, uh, you know, we we'll just rectify it, right? 
there was no stigma about making mistakes. Um, uh, so that was the two different kind of cultures. So what happened was, I think, you know, kind of my leadership style and ended up being a blend of the both. Um, you know, I, I, when I was working at Proctor, I, I always tried to bring in a sense of innovation and, you know, doing things in a different way. Uh, and then when I was working at L'Oreal, you know, where, because it was already innovative and, you know, very dynamic, I was always looking at how I could, you know, bring in more processes, right, to make it a little bit more organized. Um, so it was a, trying to blend the two, two cultures, uh, kind of made it made it into, you know, my, my leadership style, right? Uh, my style is, you know, I really believe in doing the homework around getting the data right, uh, but then having the guts to basically make the call and, and going for it, uh, and, and I'm not being afraid to make some mistakes, and then basically, you know, fixing things as it go as we go along. I'm really interested, Alvin, to ask you a question about, um, I guess, senior leadership meetings at the two organisations. You very clearly described how they were one organisation. L'Oreal is very um, agile and very innovative, and Procter and Gamble might be a little bit more traditional. And we all know those senior management meetings can at times get bogged down and you not really achieve very much. Was there a difference in those meetings at both organizations? Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess it's kind of uh, interesting in a sense that, you know, at a, at a proctor meeting, the meetings would tend to be, you know, a lot more collaborative, right? Uh, and you say, yeah, okay, the secret to success is always having the right level of collaboration. And there's no doubt about that. But what was kind of, what made L'Oreal kind of interesting was at the headquarters of L'Oreal in Paris, there's actually a room called the confrontation room, right? And, you know, the confront, you know, the, and, and the confrontation room is where one goes to present you know, new products, new concepts, new markets, and you present it to the uh, top management of L'Oreal. And that's where <clears throat> you bring in all your mock-ups, what the product looks like, the prototypes, and so on and so forth. And there's a huge debate and confrontation around, you know, uh, the merits of the, pro the, the new product, right? I guess, in a way, because of the French culture, the word confrontation you know, might be misunderstood, right? Because in a way, the English meaning of confrontation tends to be much more negative, right? When you, you think, when, you, when I say the word confrontation, to you, you think, oh, wow, fight, right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, but the French word is confrontation, right? Confrontation is basically the meeting of minds, the meeting of ideas, right? And where ideas confront one another. And because I think the French tend to be much more philosophical also, right? There's a lot of, and they love debating. So that's why I think they call it confrontation. So confrontation is the two sense of it, right? The, the negative sense in the sense that it is a bit of a fight and the positive sense in the sense that it is the coming together of many ideas, right? The ideas of the team that's presenting the project, the ideas of management team that's gonna be giving you feedback and it's only through confrontation that you get the best, right? Uh, it's kind of like going against the whole idea of yes man culture, right? There's a little bit of, 
sometimes when you get in a company where things are a little bit too collaborative, there's a little bit of that, you know, everybody's nice to each other and the real, you know, the gist of the discussion never really gets talked about. So when you get into a confrontation, uh, you know, the, the salle de confrontation in, in L'Oreal, it tends to be that way. Everybody just throws out really what they feel, what they think, and that's where you get the best, right? And did you have any experiences in that confrontation room that you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, you know, every time we're going to, you know, bring in a new uh, product to be launched, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a confrontation. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the key tenets of the blueprint that was put together for the launch of, uh, for the expansion of, of L'Oreal in Asia you know was very much debated because obviously L'Oreal was in Asia before I was and they believed that they had gone in there with their best foot forward and you know so the background was you know L'Oreal's you know main core business you know in France and globally was 50 percent uh, in the you know consumer sector uh, division right and these would be, you know, anchored by brands uh, that were clearly in the shampoo category. And, you know, because they were doing so well in Europe, they decided to basically go into Asia with that, you know, strategy. And I told them that it was the wrong idea, right? Because just because you're strong in your home country with the shampoo business doesn't mean that's what you're going to, you know, start with. And in fact, the shampoo business was highly competitive. It was already dominated by Procter, dominated by Unilever. And, you know, L'Oreal would be just picking up the, the scraps. And on top of that, the margin for the shampoo business is very low at about, at the best, you know, uh, companies are making 8% you know, profit margin. And I said, hey, look, you know, as far as I'm concerned, L'Oreal has so many other products that are, that are, that is unique to them that the likes of Procter and Unilever cannot compete with. And that's in the whole area of cosmetics, you know, color cosmetics, and in the whole area of skincare, the whole area of hair color. And these are all high, you know, margin businesses. So, you know, there was a big discussion around, you know, around that strategy. And, and then also, again, you know, you know, reminding them to say, hey, look, when you get into a new territory, you can't just bring a European formula and expect a European formula to work on Asian hair too, because Asian hair, Asian skin are different from European hair or Caucasian hair and skin. So I made the case also that they also had to come up with uh, specific Asian formulations. So, you know, that, that was kind of example of what was, you know, discussed in the, uh, the confrontation room. Right. Amazing. And, and you can yeah. obviously see the benefit of a system like that that's been able to um, elicit the L'Oreal success in Asia. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And so all this amazing work that you've been doing, the different cultures and leadership styles you've been involved with. In 2004, you were, were awarded with the title of uh, Chevalier de L'Ordre Nationale du Merit. And I apologize for those who are French if I pronounce that quite incorrect. Um, by the French president Jacques Chirac in recognition of his business achievements and advancement of your French, of French culture in Asia. So how did this come about? 
Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, again, uh, I was, I felt, you know, totally honored to be in, uh, bestowed the award uh, by the French government under the leadership of President Jacques Chirac at that point in time. The Chevalier de l'Ordre National Merit is only uh, is one of two civilian orders given out and created by uh, President Charles de Gaulle. And um, <clears throat> uh, a dossier is built on the work that uh, you've done. And, excuse me, <clears throat> and uh, that dossier then gets uh, submitted to the French government in Paris and it gets reviewed. Um, I guess the work that I did in advancing the growth of L'Oreal, advancing the awareness of French culture, um, you know, uh, advancing, you know, the, you know, all that was uh, associated, you know, uh, they, they, they seem to think with France, right? Um, you know, again, it culminated in, uh, you know, the creation, in, you know, when I created what was, the, you know, at that point in time, the first KL Fashion Week. As you know, a lot of key cities in the world have fashion weeks. You know, the most famous ones being New York Fashion Week, London Fashion Week. And I thought that was married to basically create KL Fashion Week. And with the, you know, in partnership with the Star Publication Group in Malaysia, we were able to create that. Um, and, um, and we sponsored all the makeup, you know, hair care and, and, and so on and so forth. And made that pretty big. And, uh, and I think we were, I think because we were in newspapers every day. Uh, that really, you know, drove awareness, and uh, I think that was what was appreciated by uh, the French government. Impressive, and, uh, Alvin. My understanding, the English equivalent is actually a knighthood, so that's a fairly high honor. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that again. Like I say, I mean, the French, you know, the Chevalier, and you know, you know it's, it's just a horseman. The guy thinks he's a horse. Uh, and You're I, very I'm modest. Joking. You're a very modest man. You know, no, because honestly, the, the the National Order of Merit has a couple of you know different ranks. So the Chevalier is actually the first rank, and, uh, and then the next the next order, the next level up is the commander. So you have the commander and the Chevalier. So I, I think while the translation of Chevalier is knight, uh, I think it's just in the French culture, it's just the guy who takes care of the horse. <laughs> it's, it's still a very impressive award. So congratulations on that. <laughs> So, so digressing a little bit here, you know, in recent years, you have spent a lot of time in that governance space as a board director in both the education and corporate spaces. You know, for you as a managing director, how easy or, or challenging was it to transform into that board director role? Yeah, Craig, you know, um, it's, uh, it's strange for me to say, but it has always been part of my life plan to get into board roles uh, as it was my plan to not join my family business and actually strike out on my own and join a you know a reputed you know multinational company to run its business far from headquarters um, you know again a couple of you know reasons for that is that you know uh, running a business for multinational far from headquarters, gives you the freedom to do the things that you need to do by having the resources and the backing of a very big group. Uh, so having gone through all, you know, Procter and Gamble, uh, where I learned a lot and having gone, you know, uh, a lot about what it takes to basically build winning businesses, 
And then having gone through L'Oreal, also again learning, you know, very innovative approaches and you know a very entrepreneurial approach. Uh, I felt that again, you know, down the road when I was, you know, kind of getting a little bit older, uh, I would like to be able to share my experience, you know, with other companies and other, you know, organizations. And stepping into board roles would be the best way for me to do that. Um, I guess, you know, the first opportunity for me to be able to get into those kind of roles and a serious one at that was at the Taipei American School you know, taking on the board director role there and also being the chairman of the governance committee uh, to really put in place, you know, uh, the the structures that will ensure the, the longevity of the school, right? Uh, so what was interesting is, you know, having gone on the Taipei American School Board, you know, I learned a lot from this experience because I learned what it takes to basically run an education business and what a big responsibility it is uh, that you take on because you're dealing with the lives of many young people. But at the same time, I was very happy that I was able to value add to to bring a lot of my private sector experience, uh, particularly in terms of data analysis, in terms of marketing approaches, and in terms of you know what a you know the you know, the jobs that will be out there that you know we're going to be potentially cultivating the, the our students for right. So bringing that kind of expertise into the boardroom uh, into what was essentially a, you know, kind of parent board, um, uh, I, I thought was quite important. And that kind of, you know, propelled me into a couple of other roles um, uh, because at that point in time, uh, I was also, you know, approached by a, uh, you know, the Maxis group to, you know, join them and, you know, on the board. And that was back in the 20, 2013, uh, 2012, actually. So I've been a board of Maxis for, you know, almost six years now. And it's great to be able to kind of, you know, and a different kind of experience. You know, Maxis is the third, you know, largest market cap company on the KL Stock Exchange. Uh, it's run by, you know, highly professional managers. Um, the current interim CEO is an Australian who used to work at Telstra, right? Uh, we just hired a COO who used to work for Vodafone in Turkey. Uh, but even then, you know, being able to sit on that board and being able to kind of, you know, challenge the team, you know, to kind of really put forward what is the best strategy uh, in a highly competitive space is highly rewarding. Uh, and it, it kind of goes towards what I always wanted to do, which is to kind of, you know, contribute back uh, somehow, you know, you know, after having kind of gone through what I went through in all the different countries, in all the different, you know, kind of uh, functional areas um, to basically add value. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of it worked out that way, you know, Taipei American School being the first significant board role. I mean, I would say that he, European Chamber was an interesting role also, but again, I mean, the TES was the, the, the fixed, you know, first big role. It was very involving. It was monthly board meetings. And then, which is a listed you know, company uh, I, I sit on a board for, and then, then now Petronas uh, Trading, which is the downstream uh, company of Petronas uh, in Malaysia. Um, so I'm hoping going forward, I'll have a few more board roles and then I'm hopefully going to be able to retire. 
you know, <laughs> doesn't sound like you're a person to retire at all, Alvin. I think you'll be involved for a long, long time. <laughs> so you know, obviously, very passionate in growing the Southgate Ventures throughout Asia. Can you, can you kind of explain to our audience what is so interesting or, or sets the SIS group of schools and the Singapore Global Schools apart, and why it's important for the next generation and in and what. I suppose what job roles they're going to be going into, and um, the, I suppose the approach that you're trying to get and, and drive the next generation. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do is basically, you know, after having worked in, you know, the private sector, uh, mostly in the, you know, FMCG sector and the retail sector, I wanted to kind of get into something that would make a bit more impact. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to become the group managing director of Southgate, which owns uh, Singapore International School and Singapore Global Schools. And what sets um, our schools apart is that we believe that we offer the best of the world's uh, education systems at our school. What do I mean by that? You know, well, you know, we basically teach the Singapore curriculum to our primary school students. These are students from year one to year six. And then, you know, we teach the Cambridge curriculum for secondary students. Uh, and these are students from year seven to year 10. Uh, and they will, combinate with the, they will combinate with the IGCSE. And then basically for the final two years, which we call junior college, because that's how they call them here in Singapore. Uh, and that's year 11 and year 12. We basically put our students through the IB diploma program. Yeah. So as you know, um, you know Singapore, you know, is ranked amongst the top countries by PISA, an independent rating agency of different you know nations' education systems, as among the top two or three. And uh, so it's great to be able to you know uh, give. Uh, young children the foundation that a Singapore curriculum can give them and then essentially then moving them into a broader curriculum like the Cambridge curriculum because in the Cambridge curriculum you basically prepare to write you know uh, anywhere between six to ten papers uh, for your IGCSE right and because the, uh, the Cambridge system is much more content driven we believe in those years it's very important for the students to be accumulating, you know, content knowledge, yeah. Uh, but then in the last two years, we believe that I, the IB program is the best because the IB program is much more uh, uh, research-based, student-led, uh, and much more collaborative, doing a lot more group work. And, it, and it's a really great system to prepare you know, the students for uh, the next phase of their education career, which is going into you know, tertiary education, into the, into the, into the undergrad program. Uh, so you know, I, I believe that sets us apart, Craig, because there are not many schools that run three different curricula. Uh, most schools would run one, and you know, most schools would run one, uh, right through, and if not, you know, you will find quite a number that will run two, a uh, combination of Cambridge and IB, uh, but we are the only, you know, one of the few schools, if not rare schools, that actually run three curricula, yeah, in our schools. 
it's quite impressive and, and obviously want to look forward to seeing how that evolves over time. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Uh, you know, I'm going to answer this, you know, uh, in this way, you know, uh, it was a great question, guys. And I have to say it was a bit of, you know, I, I, I was, was pleased you asked it because the first time I did something new last year was when I actually, you know, uh, made a new resolution at the start of 2018 to do a semi-marathon. Uh, you have to know, it, while it may not seem like a big achievement, I, I was not a really big runner. Uh, and I really got into running and I made a resolution to say, hey, look, I really wanted to really find something that will keep me healthy when I'm on the road and you know and running is really easy because I've, I've, I've learned you know with all the traveling that I've done being based in Singapore that you know packing a pair of running shoes with me is a great way to basically stay in shape and all it takes is anywhere between half an hour to an hour right uh, and so last year the first time I did something new was you know running a summer marathon and then the most recent one was in uh, November, late November this year, uh, I, I tried for the first time, uh, uh, what do you call it? It's, it's called spinning. I don't know how you, you know, is there yeah. an, any other word for it? Yeah, where you're kind of doing speed, speed cycling on a stationary bike, right? And uh, I thoroughly enjoy it. It's a, so now I'll combine that with my running. Uh, so I try, you know, I try and do spinning once a week, and it's been fun. Yeah, and I have to say, Craig, you know my wife Juanita, and she's the one that got me into it. She goes, uh, "You think you're fit doing all your running?" He says, "Why don't you come and try and do a spin class with me?" <laughs> so, so the next <laughs> question, really, Alvin, is: Are you are you a Swifter? Do you know what that is? I don't know because it was a, a challenge I couldn't turn down. So I was like, "Okay, let me go and try spinning." Then you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, good, good, excellent. Well, what's the one question that you would love to solve? You know, guys, I was I was hoping you wouldn't get to that question because it's <laughs> it's a very good question, and I have to say I don't have anything you know kind of striking for you. And I have to say, you know, I just say, hey, look, we could talk about you know what kind of impact I can make with my schools and how many lives I'm going to be you know kind of you know help. But to be honest, I think the most practical question that I have that I'm still trying to solve and nowhere near solving it is to say where will i retire where and yeah and that's a very significant question for me because being a person who was born in malaysia grew up in canada and then now having lived in you know europe and you know asia and you know i mean i have to say there are three very likely candidates you know obviously one is uh, one is uh, uh, Malaysia because that's where I was born. I'm not sure if my, my wife would like that though. Uh, and then uh, the second one would be Canada. Uh, but then we all know how harsh the winters can be there. And the third one is Australia, actually, believe it or not. Uh, I know New Zealand is better, well, they say. <laughs> According to some people. <laughs> my only experience is Australia where you know we've had the opportunity to basically spend quite a bit of time in uh, Western Australia and we've built you know uh, 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 our homes there too and 
you know, so you know, maybe maybe winter, maybe winter down down you know down under, and then summers up in Canada. You know, you know well, that, that you sounds know. a pretty good solution. I think you've just answered your question. <laughs> yeah, the, the question is, the question is whether the wife will take it. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we'll, we'll finish off with uh, one question that we haven't really discussed yet, and that is, you know, do you have any daily rituals or habits that allows you to bring your A game? whether you're in the boardroom or when you're a managing director or even when you're around your family? Uh, so what strategies I have or daily habits, is it? Yes. Yeah, yeah I guess, the, you know, I uh, my daily habit is I, I get up very early in the morning. Uh, I get on a, you know, I get on the road by six for a run. Uh, and if I'm in a country where it's unsafe to run in, on the street, then I basically, you know, get on a treadmill, and I try to, you know, log in an hour's worth of run and hit about, you know, eight, eight to nine k's, you know, uh, and it's a great way to get the blood running, you know, get the, you know, get your, get the sweat out and uh, get the brain refreshed, and get the grogginess of, you know, having slept the night before. And and what's nice is that when you're running. Uh, I feel like I'm very much on my own. It's my own time. Nobody can really bother me. I can't do any emails. I can't reply to anything, WhatsApp messages. Uh, and I don't, you know, I, and nobody really calls me at a time in the morning anyway, right? So it's a great time to reflect on the day before and reflect on the day ahead and basically get ready uh, for what needs to be done. And, you know, surprisingly, I get lots of great ideas uh, when I'm on my run, so that's what I do every morning uh, without fail uh, And I'm hoping that my knees will hold up, you know, they always say hey you're running so much you gotta be careful with your knees and You know, uh, but I guess nowadays they have uh, all kinds of uh, health supplements you can take and if not that then you got all those KT tapes You can tape onto your I think uh, <laughs> you can tape yourself up. Certainly some of those think, uh, L'Oreal creams rejuvenation <laughs> creams on your knees will work a treat <laughs> I don't think so, but I think Ben you're probably more the expert on these kind of things so. I, might, I might be coming to you soon. So. Sounds fantastic. More than happy to help <laughs> Well, Alvin, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You know, we've we've got some great insights into how some of the big global entities such as Procter and Gamble and L'Oreal work from a leadership style. What how they approach it in a team point of view. Uh, you know, the innovation style versus here's the tried and true method. Um, we love what you're doing with the education side of things, and really excited to see how that you can really bring together different styles of curriculum and and challenge the students in different ways throughout their education life. Um, and, and you know, obviously for yourself, you've now found that running and, and spinning is a great way for you to reflect on life and what you're doing, uh, sorry, what you did yesterday and what you're planning to do today and, and make sure that you're fit and healthy and can stay fresh and have lots of energy for the years to come. So um, it's been an absolute pleasure and please say hi to your lovely wife, uh, Juanita, and, and it's great to hear Anaki and Tansy are doing really, really well in, in their you know in their chosen fields as well. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Craig, and thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure to meet you, and uh, I hope we will get a chance to see you guys either in Australia or, or wherever you may travel to. Absolutely, Alvin. It's it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. On today's Active CEO Wellness Tip, we're talking about the plan of attack. 
uh, to ensure that you get some exercise every single day about planning how you're going to go about it. So remember, failure to plan is planning to fail. You know, CEOs and leaders often keep track of their important dates, meetings and deadlines in an online schedule or physical diary. So even using a PA that, that can keep them on time. You know, your exercise should be no different. Yeah, absolutely. And apart from planning, it's also just about, uh, and we've spoken in the past about this, about the commitment to um, staying on task. And we all know that exercise um, has so many benefits, but it's the consistent exercise that's really the important thing. Yeah, it's a, exercise is a fundamental building block to achieving peak performance as a CEO or leader. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. We've heard that plenty from the people we've spoken to. Therefore, it is important to take the time, sit down and assess each week, month or year and see the opportunities to block out regular time slots for exercise. You know, you should treat these time blocks the same way that you would treat any other meeting. You know, it's got to be a priority. So Ben, one of the enjoyable podcasts we've just finished there today, Alvin Hugh, um, incredible guy who Mm. started off in Malaysia and you know, traveled into Winnipeg. Yeah, uh, for his high school years, his uh, parents uh, thought that education was best over there, um, which might be true or might not be true, but I can certainly say the weather would have been quite different. Oh, mate, uh, when you're talking like 35 to 40 degrees average day in Malaysia, high humidity, and you, and you go into Winnipeg, which is what, minus 40? Minus 40 and zero humidity. I, I can't believe the difference. It, it certainly would have been a transition, and, and he's a tough man for sticking that out. Oh, definitely, and you know, just just amazing. And then obviously, he, he just had that that whole entrepreneurship and wanting to take ownership of his life and not follow in the family footsteps right from the beginning. And mm. he's saying, look, he he hasn't actually gone back to live in Malaysia. No, no, it'd be interesting. And I, and I wish uh, maybe we get a chance a second time to speak to him. But the reasonings behind the family business and not going back in there and and where the family business now stands today and, and how that's running would be really interesting to delve into also. Yeah, what a lot of different experiences too, you know, obviously working in Canada to um, then being in Asia, up in Europe, a little bit in Australia as well. So he's got just di- diverse backgrounds of business sense and understanding. And he talked about with Procter & Gamble and L'Oreal, the differences mm. in the way they worked in, inside the leadership team and the leadership style. Yeah, that, that was really fascinating for me and I think it will be for our listeners too to, to delve into the different cultures and, and how they did it. You know, um, he talked about the L'Oreal experience in the conflict room. Um, Con- confrontation room. Confrontation room. room. Uh, for us from an Australian or Anglo-Saxon background, that, that's um, you know put on your boxing gloves Get style ring. room and he was explaining it quite differently that it was quite a positive experience um, is how they do it. So really... Really interesting stuff. And Great st- take-home for our listeners. Yeah, right? you, yeah. would, you would never get that from anyone, really. Yeah, and I think it's so important. I, I would have liked to have known you know, how many times you could go back into the confrontation room or whether it was a one-hit wonder, like you've got to go in, you've got to present well. Mm. You know, he talked about prototypes and, and having all the different marketing ready to go. So it'd be interesting to see what how much to and fro there was and, mm. and how many reiterations they could do and, and whether it allowed to. It sounded like it may be mm. that they could have keep going for a certain amount of time and, mm. and then obviously had to move on to something else. And how about that um, that fact that uh, L'Oreal sort of transferred to using English across the board? I mean, that would be no easy feat in an organization. Massive cultural change. Yeah, and, and it's just that pr- pride in the French way and to say that we're actually going to English would have been a, a massive challenge. 
well, especially, you know, he talked about a few times around the differences in the in, in what a, what the meaning of a word is in English versus what it is in French. And mm. Quite opposite ends mm. of the spectrum. Mm. No, no easy task. And obviously they've been successful. He quoted those numbers of how big L'Oreal was now. Um, groundbreaking, really. Yeah, a lot of people. So, you know, obviously still very young in his career. He's only in his mid-50s, but he's... He's already transitioned into, you know, being a board director over the last sort of seven or eight years and really excelling in that field as well. So not just about managing or, or being a CEO, but also around being that director and be able to sit back and provide that support and governance that our leaders need in those big companies. Mm. So it's so really fascinating to see where he's heading with the education space now. And I really think that um, that open mindset and the, the desire to give back really came out and those board roles, it was all about giving back to education and children. Full credit. A lot about paying it forward, you know, yep. and, that, and that's so evident in the Asian culture. And you can see that, you know, he's he was looking at, you know, what style of education did he want for his children mm-hmm. versus, the you know, the style that he got where he was kind of thrown out into the wilderness mm-hmm. and learning on his own to where he is now. It's a lot more protection, protectionism, I suppose, in a way from having that family around and the support they need to ensure that they can get through um, I suppose a lot more pressures in life now where you've got social media, et cetera, that, that may challenge them. And, mm. and obviously it'd be interesting to see too what they're doing in their school, um, their, their new schools around that whole social media interaction technology and, and how that interplays with uh, different job roles that are coming up in the future. Just, just fascinating. And I think I'll put to you right now, let's, let's go back and delve into it a little bit more with Alvin in a, in a second interview at some stage. Maybe look at a video cast in the future. Yeah. That might be the way to do it. Absolutely. So Ben, that was the Active CEO podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.